Dead. My first job is to make sure I don't push the wrong button and undo everything everybody's worked on this morning. Good morning, everyone. We'll start shortly. There we go. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. On an omnibus hearing date, I wouldn't take appearances. It would take too long. Uh, but today, since it's limited parties, I think it's worthwhile. Let me start with those who are in the courtroom. Let me have appearances. Good morning, Your Honor. Richard Kanowitz, Haynes & Boone, proposed counsel for the debtors and debtors in possession. With me is my partner, Richard Annigan. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Felicia Edgen, Cole Schatz, PC, proposed counsel to the debtors as well. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Robert Stark. I'm here with uh, Mr. Jonas and Mr. Owlett from Brown Rudnick. Also, Mr. Stoltz from the Genova Burns. The gang's back. All right. The gang's back. Uh, uh, proposed counsel to the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Welcome. Good, good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Jeff Sponder and Lauren Bilski from the Office of the United States Trustee. All right. Good morning. Ms. Knowlton, how are you? Good morning, Your Honor. Carol Knowlton, of course, did Knowlton appearing on behalf of George Giroux on the Giroux matter. All right. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Edward Schnitzer from Montgomery, McCracken, Walker & Rose on behalf of Samuel Bankman Freed. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Brian Gluckstein, uh, along with James Bromley from Sullivan and Cromwell on behalf of the F. TX Trading and Affiliated Debtors. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Joshua Dorchek with Lee Matthew Ziegler from Morgan Lewis and Bakke at LLP on behalf of Angela Barkhouse and Tony Shukla, who are the joint provisional liquidators of the emergent FTX entity, Emergent Great. Fidelity Technologies Limited. Thank you. Mouthful. Good morning, Your Honor. Therese Doherty, and with me is Caitlin Walsh from Mintz Levin on behalf of Defendant Marix Capital Markets Limited, formerly known as EDNF Capital Markets Limited. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Now let me turn to those who are appearing remotely, if anyone wants to enter appearance. Uh, during the course of the hearing, if you're appearing remotely and wish to be heard, just use the hand raise function. I'll do my best with my law clerks to spot you and have you be heard. Let me start. Mr. Jarrow, I see you. Your hand raised. Oh, I think you need your speaker on. 
I'm still not hearing. Uh, I hope it's, I don't know if it's on my end. Oh. We can hear you, Judge. Okay. Well, this may be problematic, Mr. I don't know if it's Gero or Gero, my apologies, but I'm not hearing you. I hear others on remote. Let me go back to others, and let's see if uh, it's it's yours or, our, or on our end. Mr. Sirota, good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Michael Sirota, Cold Shots PC, co-counsel for the debtors. And I see Mr. Sussberg. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, Joshua Sussberg, Kirkland Ellis, uh, proposed counsel to the debtors. Um, I would like, if Your Honor is okay with it, to provide a brief status update at the outset. Um, and I appreciate, Your Honor, uh, entertaining the remote appearance. Thank you. Not a problem. I'll get to you when we're ready to start. Mr. Adler? Good morning, Your Honor. David Adler from McCarter and English. Uh, with me on the phone, I believe, is also Lisa Bonzel. We are proposed efficiency counsel for the official committee. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Uh, Mr. Pasquale, if I'm pronouncing it correct? You are, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, Ken Pasquale for the official committee of unsecured creditors in the FTX trading case. I'm with the firm of Paul Hastings. Great, thank you. Good morning, Ms. Koski Apop. If I um, no, I'm butchering that. You actually got it exactly right, Your Honor. Uh, Jim Koski, Chapman Pepper, on behalf of an ad hoc committee of wallet account holders. All right, great. And Ms. Parlin. Good morning, Your Honor. Barbara Parlin, home tonight for Silvergate Bank. Thank you. Well, all right. I think I've demonstrated why we won't do that again on omnibus days. All right. So, Your Honor, this is Mr. Shapiro. Yes. Uh, I, uh, Seth Shapiro. Uh, we are not appearing in the adversary proceeding on behalf of the United States today, as we are not a party to that proceeding. But um, I did file a notice of appearance in the main case, and I am here to answer whatever questions the court might have about the notice of asset seizure that we filed last week in the main bankruptcy. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to have your appearance. I certainly think it's going to be relevant. All right. Mr. Gerald, you want to try it again? Yes. Good morning, Your Honor. I have uh, appearing with audio via remote, uh, the phone, and on video on the computer. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Mr. Banker? Good morning, Your Honor. David Banker, Montgomery McCracken, on behalf of the about received. Mr. Schnitzer has already appeared in person, and he is now admitted to the Thank you, Your Honor. All right, thank you. And I think I have everyone. All right. Uh, let's see. Now let me turn back to Mr. Sussberg. Uh, we can start with the status uh, since we're here on the second, uh, our second hearing in this case. Yeah, thank you, Your Honor. Um, and again, for the record, Joshua Susper from Kirkland Ellis. If I could ask Your Honor to share the presenter role uh, with Mr. Jacobson from my firm, we can put the slides on the screen. All right, Maria. Sure. Easier said than done. 
They're setting up an easel, Josh. <laughs> the modern marvels of technology. Well, with about 150 remote appearances, it's hard to find people. Well, Mr. Jacobson, you want to raise your hand? There he is. All right, uh, Mr. Jacobson has presenter status. He needs to share it on, on his end. Yeah. And, and, Your Honor, as you mentioned, today was supposed to be our uh, omnibus second day hearing. Um, unfortunately, fortunately, and not criticizing, but it took several weeks for the committee to ultimately be appointed, and that was not until December 21st. And obviously, we want to get off to a good start with our committee they need some time to digest some of the relief that has been sought. Um, some will take more time than others. The goal here is to be as consensual as possible, which I'll talk about. And as a result, uh, we move to hearing today and much of the relief that we were seeking to next week. Um, and we'll likely be seeking uh, another hearing from Your Honor for certain relief that I'll get to in a moment. All right. Uh, Mr. Jacobson, if you could share the slides. Um, my apologies. Your Honor, the, um, the Zoom is still telling me that the host disabled participant screen sharing when I, when I try and um, share my screen. All right. Uh, we need to take a break. Do you want to see if we have Andrew? My our apologies. We're just going to take a couple-minute break, get our IT person up here. All right, we are ready to go. I see material up on the screen. Mr. Sussberg, it's your podium. Thank you, Your Honor. Again, for the record, uh, Joshua Sussberg, Kirkland and Ellis, um, wanted to provide the court with a brief status update um, as well as a preview of some items in our SOFAs and schedules that I think are appropriately served up best um, in a live conversation. And that's the roadmap, as you'll see on slide two. And we'll get through this uh, fairly quickly so that we can get to the proposed agenda items, which there are two, uh, and Mr. Kanowitz will be handing those for the company. So progress uh, since the first day hearing, Your Honor, flipping to slide four. And I think this is important. Um, we talked at the first day hearing about the path forward. And obviously we filed a Chapter 11 plan on a standalone basis on the very first day of the case. But the thesis all along has been that Mollis and Company, our proposed investment bank, would run a comprehensive marketing process for all, substantially all, or some of the company's assets. And that process is well underway. As you see on the slide, 106 different parties, both internationally and here domestically, have been contacted and are at various stages of signing confidentiality agreements and ultimately getting access to information. And as we note at the bottom of the slide, we do intend to file a motion seeking approval of bidding procedures so that we have a very strict uh, and robust process that people can understand and look to as we market these assets. But importantly, and as I'll come back to in the context of committee discussions, it will be incumbent upon the company 
to demonstrate from an overall business perspective that there is, in fact, a potential standalone option. And the only way in which we'll be able to assess a truly value-maximizing path forward is to understand the viability of that standalone and be able to compare it to the results of the auction process. Hence the need for bidding procedures and hence the need for a lot of work on the company side together with the committee. Um, and that will all come in due course. On the next slide, Your Honor, uh, and true to our word, we filed a motion um, a couple weeks after the filing to return money that is in the wallet function at the company. Um, we believe, based on the terms of use, that the proceeds and the dollars and the currency in those wallets is the customers. And as a result, our focus is on clients and getting those clients back their money and we filed that motion to put a stake in the ground. Uh, we are closely coordinating with the committee, uh, and there are some diligence items that are important to navigate, including a preference analysis assessment and making sure that we're holding on to funds that otherwise should not be leaving the system. And so while we very much would like to have this heard on an expedited basis, we absolutely respect the committee's right to better understand this, the ordinary course reconciliation, and the like. Um, and it may be more difficult than we expected to make certain distributions and not fully turn on this function. So we are going to continue to work through this with the committee with the goal of being before Your Honor as quickly as possible so that we can put money back into clients' pockets. Um, and we understand that there have been some objections to this motion. We will address those in due course. I think they can all be reconciled, and we're going to work with all deliberate um, speed to get this up in front of your honor with the committee support. Next slide, briefly, uh, just wanted to note we filed several second-day motions as well as retention applications. Uh, many of those will be heard next week. Uh, others will be adjourned dependent upon the committee's diligence uh, and where they stand as far as the relief is concerned. But I did want to make sure to note for your honor what's to come. Uh, there are some issues where we may have a tussle or two with the United States trustee, um, but we are prepared to move forward uh, on all the relief that we've sought, again, on an expedited basis. Uh, as I mentioned on the next slide, the United States trustee appointed the Clients Committee on December 21st. Uh, nine individual clients appointed to the committee. Uh, the committee went and quickly retained professionals, as you'll see on the next slide. And the committee is being represented by Brown Rudnick, uh, M3, Elementus, and Mr. Adler, who I apologize, I forgot his logo on this slide. Um, Mr. Stark, who I know the court is familiar with, uh, I go back a long time with Mr. Stark. And um, we've had our fair share of disputes uh, and disagreements, but there's never been a time where I haven't been able to get to a resolution with Mr. Stark. And we talked about this case being different than Voyager and Celsius and FTX. And I think true to his word, Mr. Stark is committed to working with us to make that a reality. Um, and I'm happy to have him on the other side. Again, someone I know, respect, admire, uh, and consider a friend. And we look forward to working with the committee professionals as well as the committee. Um, because I will note it was important for our management team to be able to sit with the creditors committee at the outset here. And so the committee, again, appointed on December 21st, we had an in-person meeting this past Friday at my office. Uh, the entire committee was there, all of their professionals. I think by all accounts, everyone who was there thought it was a very good 
constructive meeting, uh, and it's the beginning of what we consider a very, very important relationship, unlike a typical committee better relationship because of what's at stake and how these cases work. And at the end of the day, we're serving our clients, and they sit on this committee. So looking forward to working with Mr. Stark and the team, um, and M3, who we know extremely well, that by Mr. Meiji, uh, and, of course, Mr. Epp. Next section, Your Honor, uh, is a preview of our schedules uh, and statements. Um, we are filing SOFAs and schedules on the 11th of January. And my style, as I told Mr. Stark yesterday, is not to bury a bunch of information in thousands of pages and have people go on a treasure trove hunt to try to find what they may or may not think is important. And so today, Your Honor, I wanted to preview for you and for everyone else, I've previewed this for Mr. Stark, uh, some items related to insiders in the SOFAs and the schedules. And I think it's important because, as we've seen in some of the other crypto cases, um, these issues can become lightning rods, uh, and it sure did in Celsius. Uh, this case, as we've said, is unlike any of those other cases, and we are a completely transparent operation. I want to walk Your Honor through exactly what happened and how insiders were treated uh, and what went on. On the next slide... I think it's just helpful to level set. So this was the January to November timeframe. And again, remember the company had a settlement, a historic settlement with the SEC back on Valentine's Day of last year. Um, and that was then followed by the Terra Luna collapse, which we spent a lot of time talking about, and then the Celsius and Voyager pausing of withdrawals, which created mass confusion and obviously contagion throughout the industry. In order to avoid having to halt withdrawals, right? BlockFi entered into an agreement with FTX where FTX, on a junior basis, backstopped all of our client withdrawals. And as you'll see, that led us to the ability to process more than $3 billion of withdrawals between June 1st, when everyone else was pausing their systems, and the filing of these cases. The issue and the problem was FTX-related uh, and the now-known fraud of FTX. Um, FTX got into a liquidity crunch. Its native token fell off the planet Earth, and they filed for bankruptcy on the 10th, and BlockFi was not long after. Um, on the next slide, and I think this is important, and obviously people can spend time with this. This will be in our schedules and statements. And again, this is a preview. But the management team at this company deployed their personal assets on the platform to trade, like all other clients, earn interest for store currencies. And what we decided to do in an effort to be completely transparent is put the name of each executive and show the activity in their accounts on the BlockFi system each month through to the file. And I want to note, and I, I don't necessarily ever like to read anything, but the point at the bottom is incredibly important. No member of the BlockFi management team was through any cryptocurrency from the platform after October 14, 2022, and no member of BlockFi's management team made a withdrawal greater than 0.2 BTC in value at any time after August 17, 2022. Now, for those not familiar with Bitcoin, I think the way to conceptualize this, if Bitcoin was trading at $20,000, 0.2 BTC would be less than $4,000. And I think the important takeaway here is that there was no situation where insiders were pulling money off the platform on the eve of or anywhere near this bankruptcy filing. 
uh, and that is super important. One other note, um, and we have a footnote on this slide to this point, but in April of 2022, you'll see a rather large withdrawal by Mr. Prince, the CEO and founder. That was to pay taxes, and it makes sense. It was in April to effectuate an April 15th tax payment, but we wanted to be crystal clear with the activity and how everything else worked. The rest of the chart, when we talk about October and August, shows balances decreasing because of the value of BTC, because you see on the slide how much it went down over the course of the year. Next slide, just briefly. Um, I mentioned this before, but all of 2022, this company processed $7.7 billion of withdrawals. And from June 1st through the platform pause, again, when all the other cryptocurrencies that failed were pausing withdrawals, causing mass contagion, we processed $3.3 billion of withdrawals. And to put this all in context, as we say at the top of the page, the management team's withdrawals are a tenth of 1% of the $7.7 billion in withdrawals. So this is not uh, the Celsius case where management extracted value on the eve of the file. Next slide. Uh, this, again, we've talked about this crypto winner, FTX, and the, the fraud that was FTX. Same thing happened, uh, and I experienced it directly in the Voyager case, where FTX stepped in to try to save Voyager, only really to try to save itself. Um, but this was a deal that allowed us the ability to process withdrawals for customer all summer in a very confused marketplace. And again, this was a $400 million backstop on a junior basis uh, that, again, allowed us to process those withdrawals. I mentioned this because on the next slide, the impact of the FTX transaction was significant on the executives, the employees, and the shareholders. Uh, the only way to raise money at the time was on a junior basis to protect the clients. But the company was, in fact, pursuing equity raises and could have pursued senior capital on a secured basis. But it did the safest and the most viable thing, and it took the FTX money, which would ultimately lead, as Your Honor knows, to a potential FTX transaction. Importantly, though, the company needed to get stabilized after the FTX infusion, and it created massive uncertainty amongst the employees. And you see the 20% reduction in force, and you'll understand as we talk about it the value that was lost for this executive team on pieces of paper from an equity standpoint when this company had been valued at six to eight billion just a couple months before all of this. And so it became important to implement a compensation structure that kept people at the company so we could facilitate what we thought would be an FTX acquisition here in 2023. And therefore, as you'll see the next bullet, in July of 22, the board of directors approved really a three-pronged strategy to help retain key employees. In the next slide, you'll see each of the three prompts. First, I just think it's worth noting that many employees had paid out of their own pockets or otherwise got financing for shares or options that were all rendered worthless by the FTX transaction. So prong one was to make these people whole and in some instances grow stuff for retention. Number two, the board approved the retention program, as you see on the slide, offered an opportunity to earn cash payments. Because remember, most of these employees have been compensated in stock or options prior to the FTX transaction. And so up to 50% of their base 
salary could be earned if they not only stayed at the company but met certain company-wide goals. And as we note on the bottom, and I think this is important, that retention program was discontinued. No payments were made to insiders, nor will any be made, and no insiders are included in our proposed CURP motion, which the committee is in the process of diligence. Uh, and number three, Your Honor, Block by historically times raises uh, compensation uh, with capital markets activity, but because of the impact on the FBX transaction from a personal standpoint on all of these employees, increases in base salaries to ensure that people were maintained and stayed in their seats became necessary. And so as you'll see on the next slide, um, the first column is the equity, both vested and unvested, that was lost at the time of the FTX transaction. And some of the numbers are obviously staggering. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but this is the reality in which we live. Uh, we have a second column of 2023 retention payments that were put in place as part of the FTX stabilization post the summer transaction. None of these payments will be made. And then we have a, a slide and a, a column talking about salary changes following the FTX transaction, again, to help ensure that we retain critical employees. And as noted at the bottom, the CURP that we are seeking approval of has absolutely no insiders included. That was by design. Okay, slide 17. And, and Your Honor, you'll remember this timeline. We had attached it to Mr. Renzi's first day declaration. Uh, and I think this will be helpful in putting the last part of our SOFA schedule preview uh, into appropriate context. And some of this I've covered, and, and I won't rehash, but this timeline starts with BlockFi's success and growth back in 2018 through mid-2022 and the crypto winter, if you will, that led to the FTX rescue transaction and then ultimately the filing of these cases. And again, I want to use this as a preview for the court uh, and other parties in interest as they're going to see in our schedules and statements certain litigation settlement payments. And I think this timeline, which we'll overlay, will help illustrate those litigation payments and the settlement. Um, because the terms of the litigation settlement that I'm talking about are confidential, I'm going to refer to the counterparty to the settlement as counterparty A. Um, we will share copies with the committee. Obviously, we'll share copies with the United States trustee. But for public purposes and because of confidentiality arrangements included in our settlement agreements, for today, we will call it counterparty A. Uh, as this timeline demonstrates, BlockFi successfully raised capital via four different rounds of preferred equity financing. And in July 2021, for example, BlockFi Series A offering was valued at $3.8 billion. And as we'll talk about, and as I mentioned to Your Honor before, in January of 2022, BlockFi received a $6 to $8 billion third-party indicative valuation. Now, as is typical for companies like BlockFi, many of the BlockFi executives and employees have been compensated heavily in equity. And that equity obviously appeared to be extremely valuable, especially when you attach a 6 to $8 billion valuation to it. So in this context, as again is typical, several different investors approached the company, including Counterparty A. Uh, and they approached several, several members of the management team and offer different transaction structures to provide BlockFi executives and employees with liquidity in exchange for their equity upside. 
And as Your Honor is familiar, this is common for early-stage companies like BlockFi and can ultimately be a win-win for both sides. So investors here, like Counterparty A, are betting that the company will go public or be sold. And so they propose to employees that they take some of their equity off the table in exchange for liquidity, thus acquiring the equity at a material discount. So if the company IPOs or is sold, the counterparty stands to make a significant profit. And the employees, in turn, can reduce their exposure and get some early liquidity. And as a result, they're willing to suffer a discount that's demanded by the investor. And so these types of private security contracts are entered into directly between the employee and the company, and that's important. So as we note, and you'll see on the slide, so starting at the end of 2021 and then in March and April of 22, BlockFi's board of directors approved certain current and former BlockFi execs entering into the first set of private securities contracts with Counterparty A. And we call these on the slide PSCs on the timeline. Uh, in the private securities contracts, Counterparty A promised to make immediate payments to the relevant individuals in exchange for some of their future rights to payment in the event of an IPO or sale. Uh, and as I mentioned, the first of these agreements were entered into in November of 2021. Um, again, this appeared to be a win-win for all. And uh, this was effectively an employee benefit from the company standpoint because the company facilitated its employees getting value for their equity and taking some of their assets off the table. And at the time, it appeared the employees were transacting at a material discount. In January 2022, again, a major investment bank indicated a six to $8 billion valuation for the company. Um, at the same time, BlockFi was seeking to raise additional capital through the Series F preferred financing that actually never was effectuated. Uh, more of BlockFi's current and former employees negotiated PSCs uh, with Counterparty A through April of 2022, and you'll see that on the next clip. And notably and obviously, all of these transactions predated the contagion or anyone's knowledge of what was going to happen in this industry, and that ultimately caused BlockFi uh, its liquidity issues and the bankruptcy file. Now, everything changed, as we demonstrate on this slide, in May of 2022, when a material downturn in the crypto market began. The collapse of Three Arrows Capital, as we talked about with Your Honor, and more generally the crypto winner, caused contagion that nobody had understood or ever predicted across the sector and led to material withdrawals that we were able to weather through because of the FTX backstop. Um, that sector contagion, as we talked about, really began in May with the Luna collapse. And although BlockFi didn't have any direct exposure to Luna, as everybody else started pausing uh, their platforms, BlockFi had immediate requests and massive withdrawals, and it was industry-wide, and no one was free from it. Um, the deterioration of the sector you know, had an impact, obviously, on BlockFi's equity value and counterparty A's investment, which had been made at the end of 21 and in March and April of 22. To be very clear, and I think this is super important, counterparty A's recourse against the BlockFi executives was contractually limited to BlockFi shares themselves. So Counterparty A had no viable claim against anyone or the employees, but it certainly couldn't sue its contractual party because it had agreed it had no recourse against it. And so what happened in June of 2022? Counterparty came to BlockFi and threatened to bring unfounded claims against the company directly, generally and 
in our view, seeking to use expensive, burdensome litigation to recoup the value of counterparty A's unsuccessful investment. The theories that were articulated at the time, and this predates my involvement, but it's been conveyed to me that the theories were vague, but generally suggesting that BlockFi should have disclosed more information about the damage to its business caused by sector contagion than it otherwise did. And this counterparty theorized without evidence that BlockFi knew more than it did earlier than it did. Now, BlockFi had to assess the threats from counterparty A, and at the same time it entered into the FTX transaction to backstop those customer withdrawals. Now, the transaction with FTX, remember, was hugely helpful to BlockFi clients, but disruptive to equity holders. Uh, FTX agreed on that $400 million junior loan, but essentially backstopping the company and wiping out the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in proposed equity value that existed just a few months before. And as a result of that FTX transaction, FTX had appointed an observer to BlockFi's board of directors. And from FTX's perspective, what FTX said both publicly and privately, and I was witness to this in multiple different arenas, uh, a key benefit of the deal with BlockFi from FTX perspective was stabilizing not only BlockFi, but the sector more broadly. And that was FTX's goal, and Sam Bankman-Fried has stated it over and over again. He wanted to be the white knight to try to save the industry, when in reality, he was someone in a much darker place trying to save himself. Uh, but that being said, the board observer was very concerned that litigation around this issue with counterparty A would be distracting and potentially impair our ability to not only stabilize the business post the $400 million junior funding, but affect the FTX transaction. And as a result, with the money funded from the FTX transaction, the board considered ways in which a settlement could be effectuated with counterparty A, uh, given that the lawsuit itself could cause harm both to the business and to the employees, and at the same time drain resources of the company. So as a result, uh, the threats from counterparty A were resolved in a confidential settlement agreement that we know was entered into on August 23, 2022. It was between counterparty A, BlockFi, and each of the executives that were involved. Uh, and the settlement was brought to and approved by BlockFi's then board of directors, uh, including disinterested directors at the time. Uh, the claims that were advanced, as I mentioned, Your Honor, were directed against BlockFi, and that BlockFi had allegedly provided misleading information or not enough information. Um, we all disagree and dispute. We thought these claims were specious. But again, Counterparty A had no recourse against the individuals, and all they could do was make noise. Due to the structure of the settlement, uh, certain payments, Your Honor, were rooted through the executives and ultimately made to Counterparty A. Uh, the payments also created tax liabilities for the executives, even though they did not keep the funds. So as you'll see on this slide, and it's essential to understand this, the recipient's names on this slide did not keep any funds. The company agreed to make these settlement payments, in some instances directly to the employee, but the employee then would pay the taxes associated with the amounts and then distribute the rest to counterparty A. So when the schedules are filed on Wednesday, there will be a spreadsheet of all payments made, and some of those payments will have the numbers on this slide, and will say litigation settlement. Uh, the executives, again, themselves were mere conduits of those payments, 
to fulfill a settlement were blocked by settled claims made by counterparty A. And suffice it to say, um, we, the team at Haynes and Boone and Cole Shops, and now together with the committee, will be looking at all recourse we have with respect to the approximately $15 million of payments that were made to counterparty A. Um, and rest assured, Your Honor, that we will do everything we can to make sure these estates are whole uh, and spared from specious litigation claims. But I did think this was important enough to spend a few minutes walking the court through, walking our stakeholders through, and really giving everybody a preview of what would otherwise be buried in schedules and statements. We think this is incredibly important. Uh, we think this case is different. We think this management team is different. And case in point, I think us spending the time being transparent and laying out that there really is nothing for people to see when you understand and peel back the onion was important from our perspective. And, again, I appreciate, Your Honor, allowing me the time and to appear uh, via remotely. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, bear with me. Mr. Sussberg, is there anything additional on the status you wish to say before I go to others in and outside of the courtroom? That is all, Your Honor. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Thank you. And we'll take down the uh, the slide. Thank you. All right. Uh, let me turn to counsel who are in the present. Committee counsel wish to be heard for on the status? Uh, I did have a few remarks I wanted to make. Mr. Sussberg stole a little bit of my thunder, but then he went off into a whole lot of really interesting things that I don't have anything to comment on about now as I'm learning about them. Um, as we all are. As we all are. Uh, can I have a few minutes, please? Just Absolutely. Just perspective. Yes. Thank you. Um, again, Robert Stark, uh, proposed counsel to the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. Um, and, and I do want to thank uh, Mr. Sussberg, and I'll talk a little bit more about him and their approach in a minute, but, but I do think that's helpful, and I'm thankful for it. Um, as Mr. Sussberg said um, and put on the slide, on December 21, so just before the holiday week, um, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors was appointed. We do have nine individuals. Um, they are thoughtful, intelligent individuals with real-life experiences. Um, they're sophisticated on all matters related to crypto. I'm learning an awful lot from the time that we haven't had a lot of time together, but they're, they're very good at teaching, and I'm learning an awful lot from them already, um, and they're varied. They were varied in their investments in terms of the currencies that they invested in and the kinds of accounts they had at BlockFi. So they're a good representative group, and they are working awfully hard. And I wanted to give your honor, and frankly, if, I, if you'll will allow me to use the bully pulpit, yeah. all those who are listening in, we have a good representative, hardworking, intelligent committee, um, and, we're, and we're working well together. Um, and I'll continue to update the court if there's any issues, but I don't anticipate any looking at this group as I have already. Um, we have an attitude or an approach to this case, and again, not only for Your Honor, but for everyone who is listening. Um, we're in a new industry here. Um, we're in a new industry for bankruptcy here. Uh, but there have been a couple of crypto platform bankruptcies that uh, are prelude for what we're doing here in BlockFi. And we've studied them and we've learned from them. Um, some are good, some are not so good. Uh, well, one of the lessons that we've learned is that 
financial platforms, as a general matter, perhaps cryptocurrency specific today, uh, don't age well in bankruptcy like a fine wine. Um, they can be overprocessed. And so moving thoughtfully, diligently, but quickly, being aware of the cost, being aware of the burden, being decisive, and being efficient with the court's resources and the Chapter 11 resources may be more at a premium here than in any other normal bankruptcy case that we would deal with. And that is a very significant part of our theme, which is whichever path we're going on, be thoughtful and diligent about it, but then make a decision and go with it because people are losing money um, by delay, and we don't intend to be stuck. We met with the company, as Mr. Susberg said on Friday. We had a, uh, a full-day meeting with them. It's good old-fashioned bankruptcy where we everybody saw the whites of each other's eyes, and we had a very um, frank um, and very constructive conversation with the management team, with the professional team. It was a good kickoff meeting. Um, and they shared a great deal of information with us, and they have since that. Um, and they're clearly being well advised. Some of the best in the business are on the block buy side. And I, I have very strong personal relationships with these individuals. I've worked with them, as Mr. Susbury said, in a number of cases. And as uh, true to our past experiences together, we're talking the way that we're supposed to in Chapter 11 and we're learning. Um, and the executive team shares, seems to share our view. Thoughtful, diligent, quick, efficient, decisive, Let's not sit stuck in Chapter 11. So we all seem to share that view, and that was a theme that was replete through our meeting on Friday and ever since. We're going to have our disagreements. That's why we have a V that divides us. Um, um, and we're going to try to minimize them. We have a shared agreement amongst the professionals and the clients that if we uh, extrapolate litigation and fight over everything, uh, that's not going to be consistent with a thematic approach, shared thematic approach to this Chapter 11. So we're going to try to resolve things where we can. When we have disagreements, we're going to do it in a very professional, fair, and orderly manner so that we get things resolved. And I think you saw from Mr. Susberg today, the transparency idea is carrying through already. Um, for the customers who are listening in, again, forgive me, Your Honor, for seizing the bully pulpit, but if you allow me just to say a few things for those who are listening. Sure. Um, there are many of you, many of them, and they've lost enormous amounts of money. And I'm aware, not only from my committee but from others, that very significant portions of people's own personal um, savings, retirement accounts, and wealth has gone away. Um, that is a profound responsibility on this committee, and we acknowledge it. We live it every day, full-time job. Um, and we're going to do everything we can to get people their money back as soon and as large in dollar quantum as possible not about getting stuck in the mud, being decisive and being efficient and keeping costs down and driving this case forward to get people their maximum money. Uh, we hired M3 and Elementus, you saw on the screen. They are experts at, as financial advisors and in this particular industry space. Um, they're working very, very hard to learn everything they can, how we got here, where we're going. That's very unclear to me right now, where we're going. Um, and how soon and cost-efficiently can we get there? So we're deeply, already working deeply on that with the company. We're going to be communicating with the customers. We've already set up a Twitter account. That one's a little new to me, so I'm going to learn from this. Um, we've set up the, the website. Um, we're going to be delivering information to the customer group overall. Um, it's their money. And we're going to be talking to you. 
um, talking to them. Um, and we want to deliver not only information as we can, confidentiality restrictions are very important, we're going to honor them scrupulously, but if we can get information out, we will. We'll do it timely, and we'll try to be as insightful as we can so that the, cu the customer community generally understands what's happening in this case and how it's moving forward. And we're always ready to speak one-on-one -on -one with, any, with any customer who can call us 24-7 and we'll respond promptly. Um, and we're going to answer all questions. Um, with that, Your Honor, I just open up for any questions Your Honor may have for us, but we intend to move this case quickly with the, uh, the other folks on the other side of the aisle in a very consensual way and try to get to resolution, as Mr. Sussberg said. We obviously have a lot to do. Thank you, Mr. Stark. Uh, your comments were especially important for those that aren't here today. Uh, I wanted to address uh, very briefly that the court is in receipt probably of two to three dozen individual objections that have been filed by customers, and with many of them related motions for appearances. Uh, we have done our best, uh, besides the obvious, uh, uh, I read everything. And I, I'm trying to make that clear to all who who filed uh, pleadings. Uh, they get read. They get read by me. They get read by uh, my law clerks. Uh, we're doing our best to direct individual customers to the committee now that it's been formed. We're also cognizant that there's an ad hoc committee that's been formed with respect to certain issues. Uh, and I'm hoping between those two committees and counsel rep uh, representing those committees, that the concerns and issues that have been raised are uh, often repetitive, uh, same forms and same briefs and arguments uh, can be uh, addressed and, and, and uh, supported by, by counsel uh, so that uh, the court need not endeavor uh, to uh, uh, allow individual appearances. As much as I look forward to having uh, individual customers share their views, their concerns, their arguments, uh, at this juncture I'm asking that it be done uh, uh, on a written platform. Uh, and they're always obviously transparency. They are welcome to watch and engage and engage with counsel for the committees. Uh, but it would just be problematic, I think, for all of us to allow uh, a disruption as far as the court proceedings in having multiple dozens of individuals present uh, views that are shared by those that can represent their views to the court. So not really for your benefit, but for those here as well. But for those that are watching, uh, I'd like uh, the customers to understand that the court uh, is certainly weighing all of the uh, information that's been provided to the court, uh, subject to arguments that go back and forth. Uh, but uh, at this juncture, I'm not authorizing any individual uh, appearances uh, separate or apart from actual pending motion practice or adversary proceedings uh, where parties, of course, are uh, their arguments are going to be entertained. So with that, uh, I don't know, Mr. Uh, Stark, is there anything else you want to add at this juncture? Okay. Well, uh, two things. Only that yes. we are solicitous of that. If there are um, uh, customers out there who are, in fact, interested in filing pleadings to be heard by the court, it might be better if they just call us first. We would be uh, very honored to receive those calls and see if we can be helpful and, in turn, help the court. 
um, if that's responsible. No, I think that's the best approach, and that's what we've been trying to urge them to do. And, and second, I, I think I may have misstepped on something earlier. If, if you'll allow, allow me just yes. to correct the record. Yes, go ahead. When, when I was talking earlier about returning people's money to them in sort of quantum and dollar amount, I meant value. It may be in certain respects that returning people in kind is better for tax and other purposes. So I just want to make sure the record is clear on that. Point. No, it's clear and it's an important issue. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Richard Kanowitz, Mears and Boone, proposed counsel for the debtors and debtors in possession. Uh, we have two other items on, as well as some other housekeeping uh, to discuss, but we could discuss the housekeeping at the end of the hearing. Um, I would ask the court to hear the Jarrow Lifts motion first, um, and then we could turn to the adversary proceeding issues. That's fine. Before we get to the Jarrow matter, let me just make sure, uh, with respect to the status conference, I didn't know if there's any other party that wanted to be heard. Uh, let me start in the courtroom. I didn't know if the U.S. Trustee... Mr. Sponder, did you wish to be heard on the status? Thank you, Your Honor. Jeff Sponder from the Office of the U.S. Trustee. Just very briefly, Your Honor, just to, for the record, the United States Trustee continues um, to discuss with the debtors the uh, final uh, first-day orders, the second-day motions, as well as the retention applications, and we hope to have um, as much um, resolved as we can um, prior to um, the next hearings. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Kofsky, APOP. Good morning, Your Honor. Deb Kofsky, Chairman Pepper for the Ad Hoc Committee of Wallet Account Holders. I would just add my voice to Mr. Stark that if there are individual customers uh, whose interests are aligned uh, with those of the Ad Hoc Committee, of course, they should feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to speak with them. Great. And I thank you for your participation. I think it will be important. Uh, anyone else remotely uh, wish to be heard on a status? All right, then I think we're ready. We'll uh, proceed to the Jarrow uh, stay relief motion. Let me have uh, appearances for counsel for the movement. Ms. Dalton. Carol Holton of Gorski and Holton appearing on behalf of the movement, George Jarrow. All right, and I see... Uh, I see Mr. Giroux. Uh Who's going to be presenting argument? Is it you or Mr. Giroux? I am. You're all right. I think, uh, is Mr. Giroux's father counsel? Um, yes. M Mr. Giroux's father was counsel to him in the California case. He okay. Has, he has uh, an entry. Okay. That's what I wanted to clarify. Right. Thank you. Yes, Your Honor. I will allow Mrs. Knowlton to uh, present the argument. I'm here just in case uh, I'm called upon or... Uh, if, if needed. All right, thank you. Ms. Knowlton, proceed. Yes, Your Honor. Um, the, the debtor's attorneys have filed both a, uh, an objection and a sir reply. And in, in that, their position is we shouldn't waste the money and the time going, allowing relief from the stay for Mr. Joe to go to California to ha have his, um, his case heard because, it's, because there are hundreds of thousands of creditors in this case, and we should just abide by the claims process. Unfortunately, I don't know that the claims process would um, be applicable here. Um, Mr. Giroux, is, his point is, because of the fact that there's a forum selection clause and a waiver of 
the right to a jury trial in the contract, he needs to go to the California court to have that matter decided. He went to the California court, and at the time of the filing of the bankruptcy, there was a court of appeals order or opinion that granted him the right to have his case heard in California because to do otherwise would possibly deprive him of his right to a jury trial as well as some other unwaivable rights that are present in California but not necessarily present in Delaware or other states. I understand the argument. I see that this is an enormous case, obviously, and I heard Mr. Stark. I heard what he said about having it be economical and efficient, and I agree with that to some extent, except for the fact that this is not an administrative or procedural issue. This is an issue about waiving his unwaivable right, his absolute right in California to a jury trial on the issues of his case. Therefore, I think that it is appropriate to grant him relief from the stay in order to proceed to the Supreme Court of California. The debtors, when the California Court of Appeals entered their decision that it was actually California that should hear the case, the debtors appealed to the Supreme Court, and that's what's pending right now. But right now, that order from the California Court of Appeals is the standing order. That's the decision. And I know that in their surreply, debtors submitted hundreds of pages of pleadings. The one noticeably absent one was that order that the California Court of Appeals provided. That is already, however, and maybe that's why they didn't submit it, but it's already in the motion as Exhibit 3. The original motion that we submitted on behalf of Mr. Giroux has that order in it, and that indicates that the reason that they wouldn't allow it to be heard in Delaware, which is what the contract agreed to, is that they weren't convinced by what the debtors had proposed or had submitted, I should say. They weren't convinced that it would guarantee that Mr. Giroux would get his right to a jury trial and would get any of the other unwaivable rights, that the debtors hadn't submitted enough evidence to show that he would get that. So I understand that we need to be efficient. I understand that things need to be heard promptly. But I don't know that having it heard in New Jersey or through this court would make it more efficient or make it heard more promptly. On the one hand, the debtors are saying in some of their papers that we should wait. We should wait until the claims process is done, that it's premature to do this. On the other hand, they're saying it would take too long to go to California because you won't be heard in California for a long time. You can't have it both ways. One of the reasons Mr. Giroux wanted to file this now was so that he could get started in California, so that he wouldn't be too late once the process here is completed. And also so that he wouldn't, if he goes through the claims process, he can't then go to California. So our position is that despite the fact that 
there are many, many creditors in this case, despite the fact that it, it's, yes, it's going to cost money. It would cost money here. It would cost money here because it's going to be a, because the debtors admit it's a disputed claim. Um, it's going to, it's going to be a long process. And it's our position that his right to a jury trial and the other unwaivable rights is something that he shouldn't be deprived of just because there are hundreds of thousands of creditors and because these are procedural matters that, that you know, weigh, weigh against him. But couldn't each of those 100,000 creditors make the same argument? Is there a, a basis for Mr. Jero to opt out of the claims process uh, that Congress has implemented the, under 502, the allowance process? Uh, isn't this the forum that Congress selected to displace the burden on debtors to litigate claims issues across the country? I mean, that, that's what I'm struggling with. Uh, we ha- and I, I understand that there are jury rights that have been asserted under state law, there are, there are, uh, California, there are other substantive rights. Uh, you could point to many claims in this bankruptcy in which that are bottomed on substantive rights under state law, uh, which uh, are at loggerheads with the scheme implemented under the code. Yes, Your Honor. I, I understand that. Um, the thing that's different here is that the agreement that, that exists, exists between BlockFi and Mr. Giroux has a clause in there, has a jury waiver clause, and a form selection clause, and that makes it Delaware. And and what we're worried about is that in the claims process that you, as the bankruptcy judge, would have to look at that agreement and have to honor that agreement, whereas the California court saying, despite that agreement, this should be heard in California. Um, I, I don't know if there's a solution to that. Why would this court come to a different resolution of a conflict of law issue, uh, wouldn't that be guided by the applicable law, restatement of law, as we apply it to which is the choice of law? Uh, you would think all courts uh, w- would reach the same conclusion. And uh, I certainly have, and Ms. Knowlton, you've litigated in front of me often enough, uh, various state law issues, even outside New Jersey. Oh, uh, I, issues. I, know, I know that you can do that, Your Honor. I'm confident in your ability to do that. Um, I have been in front of you many times, and I've listened to other cases that you've done. Um, I, I think I think what Mr. Joe was worried about is, would you have to, would you feel compelled to comply with the agreement that gives it the Delaware Forum? Um, I think if he were if he were confident that you that you wouldn't, and of course we can't uh, we can't know that. You can't know that until we're there. But if you were confident that you were going to have um, have the decision made in accordance with California law, uh, it, he, he wouldn't be as concerned about the fact that, that he's not in California. All right. I interrupt. Uh, if, do you have anything else? Um, no. I, don't, I wanted to keep it short and sweet because I realized that I'm taking up a lot of time here. No, we'll make sure it's comprehensive. Thank you, Ms. Knowlton. I'll give you a chance to respond. 
Mr. Kanowitz. Thank you, Your Honor. For the record, Richard Kanowitz, Haynes and Boone Proposed Counsel for the Debtors and Debtors in Possession. I'll be very quick, Your Honor. There is no cause to lift the stay, whether it's a three-part test, a 12-part test. Mr. Jarrow's not a creditor here. There's no money owed. He's a creditor in the broadest sense of what's defined as a claim in the Bankruptcy Code because he has an unliquidated, disputed something. We would just ask that Your Honor deny the lift stay motion. In fact, I think based on the reply that they filed, they are actually not seeking lift stay. They're asking Your Honor to give them certain relief and protections that they're not afforded to. We have a supremacy clause. We have a claims process. To the extent that Mr. Jarrow wants a distribution from this estate, he needs to file a proof of claim. That will impact certain rights that he has. We will proceed accordingly at that time. Everything else that he's requested in his papers is premature, and we ask you not to grant it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kanowitz. Does the committee take a position? Your Honor, the committee has not considered this matter at this time. We do not take a position on this lift stay motion. All right. Is there any other party in interest taking a position? Mr. Jarrow, your hand is raised. You have counsel, but I'll give you some latitude. Did you want to weigh in? I think you're still muted. There you go. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. I just wanted to note that the distinguishing factor between this claim and other claims is that the case is already pending. That is a relevant factor for purposes of the abstention doctrines. Both abstention doctrines apply to cases that are already pending, and also the rules recognize that a case that's already pending can be removed and proceeded as an adversarial proceeding. So that is another distinguishing factor that distinguishes this claim from the other few disputed claims in this case. All right. Thank you. Ms. Nolten, is there anything else you wanted to add in response? No, my voice certainly didn't carry from back there. No, Your Honor. All right. I understand the frustrations of a creditor who's in the midst of litigation having it halted as a result of a bankruptcy, but those frustrations are shared in this case by other parties and by creditors who are also looking to assert their rights, even if they hadn't been brought before a court. I am also cognizant that there is a pending litigation. I am not hearing a motion for remand if a matter has been removed at this juncture. I am not addressing abstention issues. There is certainly a large and significant body of law which addresses both permissive and mandatory abstention if litigation is brought by removal before the court. What I have is a, I think Mr. Kanowitz noted, a disputed, unliquidated claim or a potential, well, I think the debtor acknowledges that they're disputing a claim and a claim is very broad, but that's all we have at this juncture. In my view, it would be folly to start lawyers on the path of continuing litigation in other fora, this may have a bearing down the road, when we're not sure as to potential distributions in this case. Certainly resolution of litigation must take into account, is this a 100% case? Is this a 5% case? That's how you decide whether it 
it, it's makes sense to continue litigation uh, or, or or reach a settlement or even pursue mediation. We are far removed from that stage in this case. And I appreciate uh, all counsel wanting to get there quickly. So does the court, by all means. But we're not there yet to allow continued litigation, which, from my understanding, the focal point is simply where it should be litigated. Not uh, And no court has reached the substance of the of Mr. Jarrow's claims or the basis for any defenses. Uh, and uh, to spend time and money at this juncture on an appellate process focused on where the the case should be litigated, where there is a forum that Congress has put in place uh, in light of the, the code for allowance and disallowance of claims. And the ability down the road, if I want to punt, so to speak, and send it out, uh, those options remain. But it's far too early. Uh, and I'm going to deny the motion without prejudice uh, at this juncture, the motion being for stay relief. Uh, even with respect to the pending Supreme Court, California Supreme Court matter. Uh, I am going to direct when the, when, uh, that Mr. Jarrow, uh, in his discretion and with consultation, in consultation with counsel, decide whether to file a proof of claim. And, in, and if the claims are filed, we, we will address those claims, as with all claims, through the se- Section 502 allowance process. Uh, if if the litigation is removed to me, God bless. We'll we'll, we'll address that when 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 the, when the time arises in the appropriate fashion with the appropriate uh, body of law that's applicable. Uh, at this juncture, the court will, will enter an order unless debtors' counsel wants to submit any specific form of order. It's up to you, Your Honor. We I think we have a proposed form of order, but if Your Honor wants to uh, submit, I mean, enter one by yourself. I, I will look at the order, Ms. Knowlton. Uh, why don't uh, let me ask, Mr. Kanowitz, Why don't you forward uh, a copy again of the proposed order to Ms. Knowlton? She and her client can review it. If there's an issue, we can have a conference call. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Joe. The next matter, Your Honor, is in fact the. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. oh. Let me just, Mr. Gerald. I, I, you want to be heard? Go ahead. Very briefly. You need to unmute yourself. Your Honor, I was wondering if the non-debtor scratch that did not oppose the motion for stay relief, I was wondering if the court would entertain allowing the the stay to be modified so that it can the case can scratch only. Thank you. The, I think scratch is the agent. Of, they, they at this juncture, there is no automatic stay as to them. Correct. We have not sought to extend the automatic stay, either 362 or 105, to their benefit. Um, and there's no motion in front of you for Mr. Jarrow's request. If they believe that the stay applies and in abundance of caution they want to make application, they could do so. Uh, I don't know until they file their papers what they put in there. That may be or may not be prejudicial to the debtor's estate. Counsel, uh, at, at, at this juncture, uh, Mr. Jarrow, you are free to proceed as you think it's appropriate in consultation with counsel as, as to scratch, uh, it is not a debtor before me. That, I think that's Thank the limit Honor. of what I can offer you at this juncture. May we, may we put that in the, in the order d- 
denying uh, without prejudice, so it would be granting in part, denying in part without prejudice, so that way that the California Supreme Court feels comfortable proceeding without violating the automatic stay? Well, there hasn't been a motion for stay relief with that entity, I don't believe. Oh, Your uh, Honor, this motion did request the, the stay relief for that entity. They were served, uh, and it, it, it is in the papers. It is in the moving papers, Your Honor. Mr. Stark? Your Honor, forgive me. Uh, yes. I know that we have, we said we didn't take a position in this. We, we can't possibly respond about some litigation that we haven't looked at yet. It's risky to sort of go ahead and, and continue a litigation with a co-defendant when one of your defendants, at least allegedly, is a debtor. And I think what I understood Mr. Kanowitz saying is those are the risks you assume if you want to do that. But we as the committee, we cannot without even studying the litigation, understanding it, and the impacts on the state, support any sort of an order that allows for anything along So I'll be a little bit more blunt than Mr. Kanowitz. Your Honor, I'm just concerned about any indemnification rights between our agreement with Scratch. The motion is not clear that they were seeking relief against Scratch. It was against the debtors. That's why I filed it here. We would just ask, Your Honor, just um, to deny the motion as requested. And in fact, Maybe now, Your Honor, uh, I revisit my statement. Maybe you should enter an order so that we don't have uh, satellite litigation over the terms and conditions of what should be a very simple one-page order denying, without prejudice, the list stay request. Well, I think you can, enter, you can work on the order. Uh, it, it'll be fine. I'm not going to include in the order any provision relative to scratch. Uh, I think uh, that uh, if the California Supreme Court or Mr. Jarro wishes uh, to relay the, the, uh, this court's view. I've already given my view. It's in the transcript. Uh, and so you're free to provide a transcript uh, to, the, to the California Supreme Court uh, with respect to my ruling. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gerald. Thank you, Your Honor. You're welcome. All right. Let's uh, move on to the, I think, the only remaining although significant uh, matter is the pending turnover motion uh, filed by the debtor with the plethora of opposition uh, that's been filed. Uh, Mr. Kanowitz, or? Your Honor, thank you. Mr. Anigan will handle this Mr. part of the hearing. All right, thank you. Good morning again, Mr. Anigan. Good morning, Your Honor. For the record, Rick Anigan with Haynes & Boone, proposed counsel for BlockFi, Inc., BlockFi Lending, and BlockFi International. Your Honor, I know that you've read all the papers, so I'm not going to address background facts or the procedural status of this unless you have questions. Yeah, luckily, there were no football games important uh, yesterday. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. I assume you're aware of this, but the collateral since our December 28th hearing has been seized by the government. What the collateral consists of is approximately 55.2 million shares of Robinhood Markets, Inc. common stock, and there's approximately $21 million of cash it was all seized by the government from Merrick's on January 4th. The turnover motion originally sought to protect all the parties who were claiming an interest in the collateral. The collateral has now been secured. We're not sure it's being protected. Uh, during our December 28th hearing, if you recall, the parties discussed maximizing value of the property for any and all constituents or who may ultimately benefit from the funds that, that were seized. Council for BlockFi 
FTX, Merricks, the emergent JPLs, and also Mr. Bankman-Fried had a discussion. We discussed having an advisor be appointed to give advice as to maximizing value of the collateral. Uh, this was somewhat interrupted by the seizure. We have had discussions with the government concerning whether we should have an advisor uh, appointed or at least contemplated to give advice as to maximizing the, the value of the collateral, uh, which we think that's in the best interest of all parties concerned. Um, no agreements have been reached, discussions are ongoing, and BlockFi has reserved all of its rights related to the seizure um, with respect to actions of the, of the government. Um, one of the purposes of today's, or the purpose of today's hearing originally was to determine whether the collateral would remain at Merrick's or whether it would be transferred to a third party, all subject to this court's jurisdiction. Notwithstanding that the government has taken possession of the collateral, we still believe they're important matters for the court to consider today. And what we're asking for today is for the court to uh, retain jurisdiction over the rights to these disputes as to title, as to rights and priorities in the collateral itself. We would also ask the court to prohibit the emergent JPLs in their action in Antigua from furthering, taking further actions that would impact BlockFi's rights to this collateral. We would ask that the court prohibit the FTX debtors in their bankruptcy case in Delaware from taking actions with respect to their stay motion that would impact BlockFi. And we also, we have filed an objection to Mr. Shim's declaration that was filed by the emergent JPLs in support of their objection, and we would ask that that objection be sustained. Your Honor, the worldwide stay order that you entered on November the 30th has been treated as it never existed. Uh, BlockFi has been measured and not seeking any relief, uh, but it's very concerned that the worldwide stay order has been disrespected and if need be, at the appropriate time, we'll file motions uh, for uh, contempt motions if necessary. Without this court enforcing the worldwide stay order, there's going to be complete chaos here, as evidenced by all the objections that have been filed in this case. There have been multiple filings in the FTX proceedings. There's multiple filings in Antigua. And this is all in addition to the actions that the government has taken and, and its proceeding with respect to the seizure of the property. At this point, we've got the following parties who have asserted interest in this collateral block by the FTX debtors, the emergent JPLs, the Department of Justice, Mr. Bankman-Fried, and possibly the FTX trading JPLs who have filed a, a uh, motion in the FTX debtors case, but not in this case. Um, BlockFi, as we said on, on December 28th, is the only documented creditor of emergent. We've got a pledge agreement. We've got a filed UCC-1 statement. Those are presumed to be valid. The, the FTX debtors, FTX trading JPLs, Mr. Bankman-Fried, they're all tainted with alleged and admitted fraudulent or criminal activity of Mr. Bankman-Fried, of Ms. Ellison, and Mr. Wang. BlockFi is not. The emergent JPLs, they're a creation of litigation that was filed after this bankruptcy proceeding was filed. The, the JPL, the Antiguan JPLs for emergent weren't appointed until 
December the 5th, and their application for appointment wasn't filed until December 2nd. So all of that was after the worldwide stay order was in place. Well, these claimants may have rights and assert that the block by interest in the collateral is invalid. These are all issues that ultimately be need to be decided. We think they should be decided in one forum. We believe this court should maintain jurisdiction over that. Um, we will enter into a stipulation with the government that will allow it to reserve all of its rights and will reserve all of our rights. And this court, we, th we believe, is entitled to maintain jurisdiction because this was the first filed action involving this collateral under the Princess Lida Doctrine. This court, therefore, has jurisdiction over the collateral. We don't see that there would be any, pre any prejudice to any of the parties who are claiming an interest in the collateral from appearing in this court and having this court decide amongst everyone who's entitled to this in terms of priority, title, etc. It may be us, it may not be us, but all these issues should be decided in one place. And we, we submit that this is the court where it should be done. The court has the right to do this. It should be the gatekeeper. It, can, it has these powers under Section 105. It also has inherent powers uh, to conduct proceedings before it in an orderly fashion. And for these issues to be decided, they don't, we don't need to be proceeding in three different fora in, in Antigua, in Delaware, and here. In Antigua, we've got big concerns about due process. And in, in Delaware, we were the first filed action. We've got the direct claim in, these, in the collateral and, and therefore ask that the court maintain control over the collateral here. All right. Would you contemplate, uh, we have a pending adversary proceeding that ostensibly seeks turnover. Uh, the, the United States is not a party. Uh, would, would the debtor contemplate, or is, is the debtor contemplating uh, amending the complaint uh, yes, to right. add additional parties? Either, yes, we are. We need to amend the complaint just because of the actions that have been taken. We've also sought declaratory relief that that uh, that BlockFi has priority to the collateral, and so we would amend that. There have been, even in the FTX debtor's objection, they said if necessary, they will quickly intervene in this action. Right. The emergent JPLs, they can intervene in this action if they want to assert rights in the collateral. With respect to the government, I think we'll reserve our rights. We haven't fully analyzed whether they need to be a party to this action. We know that you have certain authority uh, as set forth in your LTL decision with respect to actions that have been taken under an alleged police power, and, and we continue to analyze those rights as well. Well, But our right. complaint needs to be amended at this point. If we need to modify our schedule because of the addition of new parties, we're more than happy to do that. I'm aware of the committee's motion to intervene into the adversary proceeding. We could talk about that when we get to scheduling or next steps. Certainly, from the limited notice of seizure that the court was provided with by the Department of Justice, I believe the position is that the government believes the title to the property is tied to the date of the criminal activity, which 
may or may not. I mean, I'm certainly today not making any rulings on that, but may or may not uh, predate uh, a pledge agreement. Or and and clearly, in a two-page notice, there is ample room for discussion as to the rights of third parties in, in any such property that has been seized. Uh, so it'll be interesting, and I understand Mr. Shapiro is not uh, is appearing remotely. The, uh, the government is not a party to the pending litigation, but he'll weigh in as appropriate. Uh, but thank you. Let, let me hear from then. Uh, uh, why don't we turn to counsel for FTX? Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. Um, for the record, Brian Gluckstein, Sullivan and Cromwell for the FTX debtors. Um, Your Honor, we did file a response um, to the motion opposing the actual turnover motion um, consistent with the court's scheduling order. Um, we have not intervened in the adversary proceeding at this point, but appreciate Your Honor um, hearing me this morning. By all means. <clears throat> um, Your Honor, it was not <clears throat> entirely clear to us um, <clears throat> what was going to be sought today. Um, I think from Mr. Anakin's comments, um, I, I don't hear the debtors requesting the relief that's actually contained in the turnover motion, which is to move the shares from what was in a neutral brokerage to another brokerage account, given the seizure from the United States government. Uh, we certainly would submit that that relief is not available. Um, <clears throat> it sounds like what BlockFi is seeking to do is have the court um, affirm its jurisdiction, um, certainly there has been an adversary proceeding that's been, been filed. Um, <clears throat> there's a schedule to respond to that uh, complaint in the adversary proceeding. Our view at this point, Your Honor, is that we could have a whole discussion if relief is put in front of the court, a motion put in front of the court. As I understand it, there's, no, there's now no relief before the court today with respect to any of the stay or jurisdictional related issues. Um, I think it's fair to say there's a difference of opinion, and I don't think it's just necessarily between us and BlockFi as to where the ultimate decisions around interest in property potentially should be, um, be decided. Uh, I, I think the government has a view on that that might be different from either one of us. And <clears throat> so it certainly seems to us, Your Honor, that at this point that the, the seizure by the government here is a very significant event. The suggestion that we're just going to proceed um, to, to adjudicate rights and interests in property that we don't know if the United States government is ever going to release it, in what form it's going to release it, is it going to still be shares, is it going to be cash, when is that going to happen? All of those are discussions that need to take place. We do agree with Mr. Anakin, and we had a conversation as he reported last week, about what seems to be the pressing issue here, which is ensuring that the value um, is maximized for creditors. BlockFi is a very significant creditor in the FTX debtors' bankruptcy cases. Um, FTX, uh, one, of the, one of the FTX debtors, is a significant um, creditor here. <clears throat> but the question around um, jurisdiction and, and venue and all of those issues seems to be putting a little bit um, <clears throat> cart before the horse where the government's in possession of the shares, is in possession of the cash. We should be, in our view, um, not litigating at this point rights in ultimate 
distribution uh, rights in, in, in those assets until we figure out what's going to happen with them. Um, <clears throat> and so we do think that it makes sense to continue the discussions around how to ensure that the shares are maximized in value for everybody uh, who has an interest, um, but to immediately have this fight around um, should you know, where should evidence effectively be presented and to which court? Uh, I think that is something that all of the parties would need to weigh in on on, on, on appropriate papers. And I think there's, there are arguments that there are multiple courts that potentially have jurisdiction. I'm just not sure that all of those issues should be teed up now uh, when we have some ga real gating issues here that have to be addressed, both in terms of ensuring that the asset is maximized and understanding what the government intends to do. If BlockFi is intending to challenge the actions of the government, they would need to obviously bring some sort of process to do that. Um, and if they're seeking to return the status quo to where we were a couple of weeks ago, that would need to play out in front of a court, obviously, of competent jurisdiction. So from the FTX debtor's perspective, Your Honor, <clears throat> this is a significant asset. We disagree with the characterization of BlockFi that we simply have uh, claims against the asset. The turnover motion and the arguments with respect to the stay that BlockFi have put forward uh, are all premised on the idea, of course, that BlockFi has the property interest it says it has. Um, and there are a number of gating issues there that we just respectfully disagree with. Certainly, we've asserted uh, the BlockFi, uh, sorry, the FTX standards, um, that we have a direct property interest. And to the extent we're correct about that, Your Honor, the stay, obviously, in our case would have attached, uh, which was filed three or so weeks before BlockFi filed this case here. So I think all of the arguments that have been put before Your Honor, as at least certainly with respect to the competing claims between BlockFi and FTX, go to the heart of the merits issues. Um, are merits issues ultimately going to have to be resolved at some point? Presumably, yes, assuming there's an asset to distribute and the government isn't keeping it or, or going to argue that it should be, you know, applied to some sort of penalty and going to be distributed. Um, but we think this fight around where uh, potential fight and, and perhaps over time issues will become clearer and perhaps processes could be agreed upon on what to do with an asset. But if we're talking about having an immediate fight, we think it's premature. We think there are gating issues that need to be addressed with the government who's in possession of the collateral. Um, they are not appearing certainly in this adversary proceeding at, at, at this point in time. And we think the party should take the time to do that before we unnecessarily press ahead with a, uh, with a jurisdiction. But let me ask this. I appreciate the concerns you raised uh, as far as timing. And uh, obviously, the court, I'm interested in hearing what the parties think the next step should be. But until notice of the seizure occurred by the government, there was a pending action in, in Delaware court. And this is, goes far beyond a turf battle. Uh, among courts. Uh, we're looking at substantive issues here uh, as to uh, the interest and in how best to protect the creditors, both BlockFi and FTX's creditors uh, in this matter. But there was there were efforts taken in the Delaware court by your client, uh, which would seem on the surface, and I'm going to ask you to explain, offend the automatic stay in this court, there is no question that I've seen that BlockFi doesn't base its claim as having a lien holder 
interest, a security interest in the shares. Disputed, no doubt, by FTX and by uh, Mr. Bankman-Fried uh, and by the JPL uh, for uh, in Antigua. But we're talking about a lien holder interest, a property interest. And it would seem to me pretty clear under the code that a debtor's lien holder interest, let's use simplistic analogy, if if, uh, BlockFi asserted that it had a mortgage on a commercial office building, certainly the office building isn't property of the BlockFi estate, but that mortgage is, and any effort to prevent BlockFi from asserting its rights or any pending action restricting BlockFi from fixing its rights in its collateral certainly, to me, offends the automatic stay of the debtor in this case. It's a property interest, a security interest, disputed, no doubt. And whether it's this court or Judge Dorsey or some court in Southern District that decides it, we'll see. But I'd like to understand how, and I would pose the same question to the uh, counsel for the JPLs, uh, how any effort to restrict BlockFi in asserting its collateral interest to uh, determine those interests, to, to either uh, prevent, them, prevent this debtor from foreclosing on an interest or to seek a determination to fix the extent and validity of an interest, uh, how that doesn't uh, run at loggerheads with the automatic stay. Uh, and it would seem that this court has, under 1334, certainly jurisdiction over the debtor's interest in the collateral, which is at issue here. Uh, and I understand FTS takes a different position, uh, but it seems to be that FTX, their interest in the collateral is bottomed on litigate potential litigation. Uh, I understand that. Uh, Mr. Bankman-Fried's interest in the collateral, I, candidly, I'm not sure what it's bottomed on. Uh, and I, I wait to hear that. Uh, the, the, liquidate, the JPL liquidators, uh, they're, they're, they're pursuing their responsibility to protect the interest of emergence creditors, which to my understanding is BlockFi, and possibly FTX creditors, which we have two courts here in Delaware and, and, and New Jersey protecting those interests. With this court, and this is a long-winded question, uh, but with this court clearly ha- having authority and jurisdiction under 30, 28 U.S.C. 1334, and the debtor having a property interest, albeit disputed, a collateral interest, uh, how are these actions pending in other four is my question, and what's the next step in your view? Your Honor, let me address Gave that. you a mouthful. There is a lot there, so if I could, if yeah. I could unpack that a little bit. So um, be clear. The motion that we filed in Delaware is not asking at this juncture um, at all to determine the merits of anything. What we have asked is to enforce the automatic stay of our debtors. Because you're right, Your Honor, there, there's a fundamental disagreement here. Right? Black Fi has come forward and said we have a collateral interest. Um, 
the nature of that collateral interest is not only disputed, the, the, the existence of it is called into question. All right? I, and I don't want to argue the facts today, Your Honor. I don't, no, I I'm cognizant. I've read the right, briefing but, 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 and I be, understand the basis. Right, but to be clear, right, what we have here is BlockFi saying we have an interest in collateral that was granted 24 hours before the FTX debtors filed for bankruptcy. We have those documents signed by somebody, Ms. Caroline Ellison, who has now pled guilty to fraud. We have Mr. Bankman Freed, who was involved in that process, now contesting whether Ms. Ellison even had the ability to sign the documents that BlockFi is relying on to create that interest in property. Okay, and so BlockFi is absolutely able to argue those points. And as I stated earlier, uh, Your Honor, I do believe that there are arguments that there are multiple um, courts here that could exercise jurisdiction. I, we're not suggesting that, that this court is incapable of hearing these issues. The, the, the problem, though, Your Honor, is, again, if we're correct, that we have not just some avoidance claim or fraudulent transfer claim, but if we're correct that the property that's now been seized, that BlockFi is claiming is their collateral, was in fact property of our estate when we filed for bankruptcy in earlier November than BlockFi filed, then we believe there's an automatic stay issue with them filing on the first day of their case, the adversary proceeding here, which Your Honor did not, that, those papers, if we go back to the original complaint and the turnover motion that was the subject of this morning's hearing, nowhere in those papers does BlockFi disclose the relationship of what this is about, which is collection on a loan that they had outstanding to Alameda, a very significant loan. Right? So, and we heard this morning in the debtor's update presentation all of the linkage between FTX and BlockFi. And so to suggest that this is just a collateral holder and we're seeking to enforce our collateral, the facts here are much more complicated. And so, Your Honor, I, certainly to the extent that the question here um, is, you know, competing stay issues or stay violations, I, you know, w we're happy to brief those issues, but I, I do think there's a, just a practical consideration, right, which ultimately is going to be, is it going to be Your Honor, is it going to be Judge Dorsey, is it going to be a judge in the Southern District of New York, potentially, as the government has, 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 has suggested, that's going to decide the merits issues? And it might very well be that the parties can sit down and agree on that ultimately in, in terms of putting some process around it. Um, but I think what our concern from, from the beginning here was that papers were filed you know, two hours into the BlockFi case, which was three and a half weeks after the FTX debtors had filed bankruptcy in Delaware. We were not named as a defendant in that lawsuit. We were not even mentioned in that lawsuit. Um, the, the, the issue of course, now is what do we do about it? And, and I think what's getting lost in this, Your Honor, is we're talking about 55 million shares of stock and 21 million dollars, 21 or so odd million dollars of stock, uh, of cash, that are in the possession of the United States government. We haven't heard anything from the United States government other than the statement that they filed in this case, they, and they made a statement on the record in a status conference in our case last week. Um, they certainly are in possession of those shares, we know that. We know that they are going to safeguard them. But the issues that Mr. Hannigan started his remarks with at the outset today, I, I think when we think about next steps, and we think about what should happen, if from our perspective, we should not be having a dispute about jurisdiction 
this week or next week. We don't feel the need, frankly, Your Honor, for our motion to go forward in Delaware that's pending. If we could all agree that what we're not going to be fighting about right now is jurisdiction, but what we should do is sit down and talk about how to maximize the value of these assets, get an understanding from the United States government to the extent they're willing to discuss with the parties what their intentions are with respect to these assets over the medium term so that we can get some understanding as to whether the parties can get comfortable around the process for ensuring both that those assets are maximized and that when it becomes necessary, we see if we can reach some sort of process about what to do. I certainly don't believe it's in anybody's interest, given that there's nobody's going to get possession of these assets in the immediate term, that seems clear, to be having the sorts of debates around who filed first, whose stay might be implicated, and what should we do about it, because from our perspective, that's not really in anybody's best interest. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you. Let me hear from counsel. Counsel approaching the podium. Thank you, Your Honor. Joshua Dorchak of Morgan Lewis again for the Joint Provisional Liquidators of Emergent. I think everyone agrees, Your Honor, that the actual relief sought in the motion is mooted or futile or something like that, and I don't need to address it. Am I correct on that? No, Your Honor. We don't agree that it's mooted. We believe it's frustrated and maybe delayed, but it's not mooted. Okay. In that case, I'll start by saying this, Your Honor. My clients have no legal or practical ability to move these shares that everyone is fighting over or to freeze these shares that everyone is fighting over to do anything with them. So the relief, we can't do anything about it unless the situation changes, and that's been true since the government took the shares. So actually turning them over to someone we can't do, so I'll just leave it at that, and I hope that's enough on that subject. You can't do it because they've been seized. Right, exactly. Okay, I just wanted to clarify. Not because we don't want to. The most important thing I think I need to address is the idea that even though the government is taking the shares, there's some lingering wrongdoing going on out there. I certainly have to address what I think was irresponsible over the weekend accusations that my clients have been sort of serially violating the automatic stay and acting in contempt of Your Honor, including some comments you made at the last hearing. So I need to address that right away. The easiest way to explain it, I think, is to tell you what's going on in Antigua. So the joint provisional liquidators were appointed on December 5th, and the order that appoints them, which is on the record, says that the purposes of the provisional liquidators' appointment are to investigate the respondents' affairs and to preserve the value of the respondents' assets for the benefit of those entitled to them, pending the determination of the petition to wind up the respondents. So the task of the JPLs is to investigate what happened and to figure out how to amass the assets of the company for the benefit of whoever is entitled to them. There's no predetermination of who's entitled to the benefit of these shares or who owns them. And since being appointed, the JPLs have never asked the Antigua court to make any decision whatsoever about who owns these shares or who should get the value of these shares. As we said the last time we were before you, we're still trying to investigate what even happened, and we have not been sneaking around in the Caribbean behind your back, Your Honor, trying to get some advantage over the BlockFi estate when it comes to these shares. I hope you believe me when I'm saying that. 
What's been going on since we were appointed is there was an attack on the authority of the JPL, brought in the first instance by Samuel Bankman-Fried, and then BlockFi joined that attack to try and sort of kick my clients off the job. And we responded to that. It was purely defensive. And again, the shares were not at issue. The shares were in the background, but there has been no activity in Antigua about these shares. And the hearing that's scheduled toward the end of January is to get a wind-up order out of the judge. Again, it doesn't predetermine anything about whose shares these are. So my clients are fiduciaries. What is sought in the wind-up order? What relief is sought in the wind-up order? The wind-up order is sought to conclude, to give the joint provisional liquidators the authority to administer the estate for the benefit of the stakeholders, presumably the creditors, who we have to first figure out who those are, right? And we're done. We're holding this asset to the extent we're holding it. The government's holding it. But our ownership of this asset in the hands of these fiduciaries is for the benefit of whoever's entitled to it. And we've never asked for a ruling on who's entitled to these shares away from this court. Now, we have questions about where the best forum to do it is, and we've said that out loud, but we have not taken any affirmative action anywhere to get some other judge besides you to decide this issue. But in order to effectuate the wind-up, do you not need to take steps to determine the extent and validity of either FTX's interest or BlockFi's interest? Sure. So there is a competing proceeding going on in another fora which affects the rights of this debtor. I'm not speaking for the FTX debtor, but it would seem to be parallel in assets. So we have potentially three, if not four, different venues deciding everybody's respective interests. Your Honor, of course, the estate can't be administered until these issues are decided. The JPLs in Antigua, as I said, have not been asking that judge, just as I feel BlockFi's counsel sort of implied, we're down there trying to take this decision away from you. We haven't asked that judge to make that decision. We came up here as soon as the counsel, by counsel for the JPLs, came up here and contacted all the counsel for the parties in interest. Our view was that we should talk about a sort of efficient way for everyone to get their claims on the table and hash this all out. We also agreed with various people that have said we want the value of the shares to be preserved. We did the opposite of trying to get this decided back down in the Caribbean when nobody was looking. We came up here and said to Merex, our custodian, because we do own the shares technically, Your Honor, we asked our custodian to freeze the shares, not to give them to us so we could go off and do something with them, to freeze them so that we could talk to the other parties in interest. And that was happening. Now the government has changed the playing field a little bit. But we haven't changed our attitude, which is that the parties should talk about how to work this out. So that always has been our position. I just want this Court to know that there hasn't been any funny business going on. It's almost done. There was a complaint about a little clause in the order that the judge in Antigua put in for BlockFi to, if they want to appear at this hearing, which they're welcome to do at the end of January, to provide the Court with a summary of the position, sort of why they're here. I understand that that's a local procedural thing that's common in every case. It's not an attempt to 
keep BlockFi out of the court in Antigua. They're welcome to come down there and say whatever they want. And just as a practical matter, Your Honor, we, we are aware that if we, even if we did go to the judge in Antigua and get that judge to say, okay, the shares belong to so-and-so, that we may have to come up here and con contend with all the other judges up here who may have a different opinion. And so there's, it, it wouldn't even have worked if, we, if that was our plan. I just want to make that clear. So if you ask me what we should do next, I'm going to say the same thing I said before, which is we think that there, there seems to be the government seizing the shares has caused a sort of you know, a reset of some sort. Okay, if, if it means that certain people should be implemented into this case, fair enough. We had already asked for more time to respond in this case because we're trying to figure out what's going on. So it seems like the party should continue to talk about that. And if there are rival forms, I don't know, maybe it eventually gets litigated if it can't be negotiated. But besides the issue of making the shares uh, have their maximum value, which maybe requires an advisor, a very practical uh, issue, I don't think there's a legal issue that requires uh, anything more than some cooperation, there is no legal issue at all that needs to be cited in the near term. I don't think that the JPL's going forward with getting a winding up order would necessarily change anything. It certainly isn't going to somehow simultaneously decide the uh, outcome of, the, of the, the shares, which of course the, even the judge in Antigua can't convince the government to do anything with. When, no threat. So would it make sense to carve out from any wind up, wind, wind up order? Uh, steps to determine, fix or extent the validity of any interest in it? I, I, I can't speak for the judge. Well, no, I'm throwing that out there. Um, but, um, but it's, in my mind, perfectly possible that the judge in Antigua would be, would be open to that, to these key issues disputed amongst a bunch of people up in the United States, that maybe that issue should get decided there, and then the effects of that issue are folded into the one. I don't think the judge would be against that, but of course I can't read the judge's mind, Your Honor. We're actually getting a new judge. The judge that we has heard the case so far is Good luck. gone off the rolls or whatever the expression is, and a new judge will be coming in. But either way, Your Honor, I just wanted just there's just nothing that interesting going on in Antigua to put it that way. Um, so th that's the main point I wanted to make. Oh, Otherwise, oh, I, I believe that the motion should be denied because my clients can't be compelled to turn over something when they literally cannot do that, and that we all get some extra time to talk and see if a lot of people can work out a lot of these procedural issues. My sympathies to the new judge uh, coming in. Just very briefly, uh, I, I know my law clerks are cringing at the thought of me asking this, but the real important question, is it Antigua or Antigua? <laughs> Antigua. <laughs> The, uh, I, that's what the lawyers in Antigua call it. They call it so I'm or even that's going to be disputed. <laughs> Maybe so. I'm not taking a position on it myself. <laughs> definitely the, the Commonwealth community uh, uses Antigua and Antigua. Fair know. enough. Thank you, counsel. Thank uh, you. Let me, before I get, thank you. Uh, is there any other appearances? I, counsel? Thank you, Your Honor. Edward Schnitzer from Montgomery McCracken on behalf of Samuel Bankman-Fried. Your Honor, as other people have already stated, we believe the motion is moot because of the seizure. Um, while the seizure was unexpected from, from our perspective, it did happen. It has been effectuated. So if you just simply look at what the relief that was requested in the motion as well as the proposed order, it, it really can't be granted because the shares in stock are no longer in the possession of Merrick's. Um, 
actually agree with FTX counsel, and maybe the one time only in this case that I will agree with FTX counsel, but as they said, basically, the arguments advanced and relief sought earlier today that you heard was not what was set forth in the motion, and it should be denied. Your Honor, as you saw in our papers, the reason we responded is because the motion was going forward, notwithstanding this, so we needed to make our point with respect to the standard for preliminary injunction. We do not think it's met. I put that forth in our papers. I believe the JPL has also put that forth. I won't burden you with repeating what we put forth in our papers. The only thing I wanted to add, Your Honor, is in part of their presentation, they said our position was tainted by the fraud of Mr. Bankman-Fried and Ms. Ellison. I just wanted to make two points, Your Honor. First of all, I do want to remind everybody, and Your Honor, I believe you effectively stated this before, it's alleged fraud of Mr. Bankman-Fried. He's been accused. He has his right in court. We will see what happens. Ms. Ellison, on the other hand, has pled guilty. I believe there is a difference there. Lastly, Your Honor, I know you asked, so I thought I would answer the question. You asked what is Mr. Bankman-Fried's interest. He is the 90% shareholder of Emergent. I don't believe anyone's disputing that. So my understanding of how things work in Antigua, or Antigua, I'm not sure either pronunciation, my understanding of how things work there are similar to how things work here in that after creditors, if there are any creditors get paid, the interest in a company do belong to equity. So that is Mr. Bankman-Fried's interest. It is contingent at this point, although I believe almost everyone's interest here is contingent because they would actually have to prove they are a creditor. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel for the committee. Good morning, Your Honor. Kenneth Allett of Brown Rudnick, Proposed Counsel for the committee. The committee supports the debtors today. Our view is that there were two things sought in the turnover motion. There is the demand to turnover, which it is what it is today, but there was also a request to enjoin the transfer of use of the collateral pending the court's resolution of the adversary proceeding, and that is of great importance to the committee. The committee does not want these shares going anywhere. Yes, Mr. Bankman-Fried's counsel is in the courtroom. You can imagine the view of the committee on Mr. Bankman-Fried having any say in where these shares go. Beyond that, Your Honor, we'll leave it to the debtors, but we wanted to register that we join the debtors in this motion. All right. Thank you. Mr. Shapiro, I'm going to – oh, before I turn to Mr. Shapiro, counsel, somebody probably wants out, but go ahead. Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, we would like out. We represent Merrick's, and I really don't have much more to add to what the counsel today has said, but as you recall, when we had the hearing before you on the 28th, I made very clear that Merrick's had froze this account on November 10th. It made very clear to all of the interested parties that these assets would not be moved unless and until a court ordered otherwise, and we did get that order by the warrant of seizure on December 30th. We made all of the parties aware of that warrant before the government actually seized the assets, and on January 4th, Merrick's fully complied with that warrant, and everything is now in the hands of the government. And I do think what we talked about on the conference on the 28th of December was everybody's interest in the next step should be to maximize the value of those assets, and I would request that we be let out of this case since we no longer are a stakeholder, and the motion should be denied. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. I'd like to turn to Mr. Shapiro. Good morning. Yeah, it's still morning for the next three minutes. I appreciate that the government is not 
a named party in the adversary proceeding at this juncture. My understanding is that in reading the notice of the seizure, that I guess with a pending or contemplated in rem proceeding that's coexistent with the criminal prosecution of Mr. Bankman-Fried, the government has seized the shares. It would seem to me that there can be many months and many market changes before the government gets to the point of whether a forfeiture goes into effect. And the concern that I have, probably shared by every other judge who has these issues in front of them, is that there not be a loss in value of the shares during this time period until ownership, entitlement, whether it be as an owner, as a lien holder, or on the basis of forfeiture, is determined by the appropriate court. What are your thoughts on working or reaching a consensus with the stakeholders to ensure that the value for the creditor body, all of the retail and larger institutional creditors, are furthered? Thank you and good morning, Your Honor. As I indicated earlier, the United States is not a party to the adversary proceeding, and I'm not appearing in the adversary proceeding, but I am here to answer Your Honor's questions as a courtesy of the court. And we would greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to submit a brief in conjunction with any accusations or allegations against the government before Your Honor rules at the appropriate time. In the interim, Your Honor should know that we have been having discussions, confidential discussions with counsel for the debtors in both this case and the FTX case, as well as others, and hopefully we would be able to resolve these issues, but if we can't, there will be an appropriate time where Your Honor can hear the arguments of the government as to why we believe that what the government did was appropriate. And, of course, ultimately, if the matter went forward in New York, in the Southern District, it would be a criminal and or civil asset forfeiture proceeding. In the interim, as part of the discussions to answer Your Honor's direct question, that issue that Your Honor has brought up has been the subject of discussions, and we haven't reached a conclusion yet, so I can't tell Your Honor what that conclusion is, but we are talking with counsel for the parties about how to address Your Honor's concern. All right. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. Mr. Kanowitz or Mr. Andrian? Let me, so I know going for, Anegian or Anegian? Anegian. Easier than it looks. Easier than Anegian. All right. Your Honor, a couple of things are really clear. There's multiple parties claiming interest in this property that likely will be the subject of some government forfeiture action at some point in the future, whether civil, whether criminal. But before 
that really can go forward. I mean, there needs to be a resolution of the rights and interests of the parties who are claiming interest in this collateral today. And, and it's unworkable that it goes forward in these multiple forms. We filed the first action. We think that under the under the Princess Lida doctrine, it should stay in this court. We don't know exactly what's going on in Antigua. I mean, our local council there asked that certain provisions of the order that sets this hearing on January the 27th not be included, and that request was rejected. So we believe, or at least there's some indication to us, that on January 27th, the court in Antigua may be deciding what uh, the rights of BlockFi are pursuant to its pledge agreement with Emergent. And we don't think that should go forward. Now, if the, if the Antiguan court wants to go forward with appointing JPLs in some wind-up order, as long as it doesn't impact BlockFi, that's fine with us. The same in Delaware. As long as they want to go forward with their stay motion, to the extent that it doesn't impact BlockFi's rights in the collateral, that's okay with us, but I believe they said they're willing to push off that hearing on January 20th. We don't think that should go forward on that day. With respect to Merrick's, we haven't released, BlockFi has claims against Merrick's and it will continue to assert those claims. Um, we don't see a point in waiting for resolution of any criminal actions against Mr. Bankman-Fried and the ultimate filing of some type of forfeiture action before some court, hopefully this one, goes forward and makes some, at least the parties can move forward with whatever agreements or ultimate fights they have over who's entitled to and, and what rights and benefits and priorities we have in the collateral. And for those purposes, we would ask that the court enter an order that, that takes control over this matter and it joins any action of the emergent JPLs in Antigua to the extent they're going to affect BlockFi, and the same with respect to the action in, in Delaware. All right. Thank you. Uh, I don't see if there's anyone else remotely who wishes to be heard on these issues. I don't see any hands raised. All right. Uh, I think all of the stakeholders and the parties uh, have argued well their respective positions. These are interesting uh, and challenging issues uh, that I'm sure all the judges appreciate having on their respective plates. Uh, at this juncture, it's, it's, it's clear that this court is not in a position to enter any turnover order of any type. Uh, the shares are being held by the government pursuant to a warrant of seizure, and the government is not a party to the pending adversary proceeding. The government wasn't a party to the motion, uh, and the government, uh, U.S. government's actions uh, changed the landscape for all involved here. So uh, the, the turnover motion itself is going to be denied without prejudice. I have a pending adversary proceeding in which I would expect uh, the complaint needs to be amended. It provides for jurisdiction by this court, and this court intends to pursue its jurisdiction and authority in the pending adversary proceeding. It, it is always subject to 
a consensus, consensual resolution, otherwise, as to uh, the proper forum for adjudicating the rights here, but this court has identified a property interest held by this debtor, subject to dispute, but still a property interest under 11 U.S.C. Section 541A, that is deserving of protection under 11 U.S.C. 362A. And this court is well-equipped. God, that sounds awful. Uh, pretentious. Uh, th this court is, is, is equipped to handle the litigation going forward, if it makes sense to the parties. And I will certainly afford the parties the opportunity to brief and argue if such assertion of jurisdiction is inappropriate. But right now there's a pending adversary proceeding. I also There's also a pending order of this court which just uh, implements the statutory rights under 362A. This court's November 30th, I think it's been referred to as a worldwide order, uh, reinforcing the automatic stay. The court intends to enforce that order the either the the contempt powers it has or other authority under section 105 to the extent that there are violations going forward the doors are open for parties seeking the appropriate relief from the automatic stay the court is cognizant that in this circuit we still views act we view actions taken uh, in violation of the automatic stay as void ab initio I don't believe there's a need to enter an order directing a sister court, including Antiguan court or Delaware court, on what actions they should be taken. The law is straightforward. And if there are actions which are challenged, they can be challenged in this court or other courts as appropriate. Uh, but at this juncture, I think we need to move forward with the adversary proceeding and uh, motion practice in that adversary proceeding as appropriate uh, to address the needs of the respective parties. With respect to the committee's motion to intervene, I'm going to schedule that for the 17th. Uh, I think that should probably be uh, resolved through a consent order. Uh, and as to other parties actions going forward, uh, this court is here to address the issues as needed. Uh, but there is no specific relief today that I can provide uh, on the pending motion. So uh, again, the pending motion for turnover is denied without prejudice. The adversary proceeding continues. All parties have their respective rights and abilities to make argument wherever you all want to. All right. Uh, any questions or concerns? For the record, Richard Kanowitz, on behalf of the debtors' estate, Your Honor. Uh, no, we, we will speak with the parties, including the FTX debtors and the JPLs, to talk about how they want to proceed in the adversary proceeding. Um, we also look forward to talking to them about moving the January 20th hearing or completely withdrawing that motion. Um, just so you know, January 20th is our 341 meeting in this case. Um, so we're not available that day anyway, but we will discuss with them a constructive way of, of moving the disputes forward in this court, if possible. Um, and we will also continue talking to the government about the proper 
way to handle the seizure and the benefit to the victims. And let's be clear. I just want to make it clear for the record for everybody. BlockFi was defrauded by FTX and its affiliates and maybe the insiders of FTX and its affiliates. We are a victim. FTX is not a victim. FTX, to the extent that creditors overlap with our creditors, are the victims. And we're here to protect the victims, and Mr. Stark and his team are well-equipped to assist or work with us to do that. But that is our fiduciary duty. The gamesmanship really needs to stop, as I said to every counsel and as I said to you, Your Honor, at the first hearing. We are fiduciaries. We are here to protect client interests and get them the best value, not to have skirmishes and litigations and gamesmanship over jurisdiction, automatic stay versus automatic stay, or something else. So we're going to try to work as cooperatively with all the constituents and adversaries and objectors in this case, in this adversary proceeding, and try to craft something that is sensible, commercial, and efficient to have the dispute, as everyone has said, about whether or not BlockFi has a guarantee and a pledge from emergent and what that means for this estate. So we're going to endeavor to do that. Two other points, just to clean up. The DOJ has, in fact, served warrants of seizure on BlockFi for certain customers or clients who are obligated to the government to turn over property. So it's customer property that we're holding. We don't think we need an order from this court to actually comply with those seizure orders, but I know Mr. Shapiro is on the phone and we have had communications about those. They emanate out of the state of Washington, and there's about two or three clients of ours impacted. It is client money. It is not property of the estate money, and we are going to cooperate and do what we need to do through counsel to turn over that money to the government based on those seizure warrants. All right. I'm going to let you know that. Thank you. I appreciate it. And the second thing I think that we need to address housekeeping is further dates. Right now we have January 17th. We also have January 30th, but we will need dates, I would believe, in late February and March, subject to any other type of proceeding that needs to be brought before Your Honor. We have a February 21 date already included. Do you think earlier? I think a little later, since we have January 30th. It could be earlier, but that week, the President's week, is vacation, among other things. So I think that week is probably not the best week to do it. Are we scheduling an omnibus date, you think? I think it would be an omnibus date. So we have 130. I am actually away the week of the, a good chunk of the week of the 13th through the end. The best I can offer you all is the week of the 6th, or if we're basically eliminating, well, let me see here. If 
since we're eliminating the week of the 20th, and the week of, well, the week of the 13th, I believe, is the President's weekend. Are we eliminating both those weeks? I, I think the President's weekend is the 20th, Your Honor. Right. That, that, that's why I'm saying that week on the oh. 21st is, is an issue okay. for certain people, I think. Uh, <laughs> Maria, do you know why we, we don't have court on the 13th? Oh, is that Lincoln's birthday? It is the government. LTL. Well, Your Honor, why don't we do this? You want why don't we caucus the estate parties and, and get back with Chambers? Because the prior week of the 13th has issues, the week of the 20th has issues, and we don't know what we're going to need potentially, yeah. so maybe we keep the 21st. It, so let's keep the 21st for now. Uh, it looks like the. No, not even. Yeah. Let's, let's leave it for now. We're, we're running out of days. Uh, or I'll have to push something else. Uh, I think that the Third Circuit doesn't rule in LTL. I have a whole day I can move for them. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, all right. Then uh, just reach out for Chambers. We, we will, Your Honor. I don't believe we have anything else on the uh, agenda. Right. We thank you for your time. Thank you. Mr. Stoltz? Your Honor, uh, Daniel Stoltz, uh, proposed local counsel for the committee. Uh, on the uh, motion to intervene, shall we submit an order shortening time uh, listing it for the 17th? Uh, we submitted it without date. I'll just schedule it. Let's let's avoid the, the paperwork. Uh, and, and will the order? Will your honor enter a text order as yeah. to when objections will be filed? Yeah, we'll we'll do that. Uh, we're talking about having it on the seventeenth, correct? Correct. So we'll have objections by. Well, let's see, seventeenth. Objections by the by the sixteenth. Uh, and, Your Honor, just so Your Honor knows, we, uh, the debtor has uh, graciously consented to share Kroll with us, so both the debtor and the committee will be using one noticing agent so that people won't get confused. I think that's great. All right. Any Anybody else wish to be heard on any matters? All right, folks. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you.